Thanks to Audible, History of the Marine Corps can now give you a free audiobook. Audible is known for its tens of thousands of audiobooks, and I use it all the time for personal reading and for some of the reference material we use on the show. In the spirit of transparency, History of the Marine Corps receives a kickback for everyone who signs up, but the author or the publisher does not sponsor me. Every recommendation is a book I have personally read or listened to. I'll include my suggestion at the end of the episode, but don't feel obligated to select my recommendation. This offer is available to any of the tens of thousands of audiobooks offered by Audible, and whether you decide to continue your membership, this book is yours to keep forever. Visit audibletrial.com slash marinehistory for a free audiobook and a free 30-day trial. Now on to the show. Welcome to episode 81 of History of the Marine Corps, Banana Wars, Haiti, Part 2. Our last episode explored why the U.S. got involved with Haiti in the first place. We discussed Smedley Butler's reconnaissance mission that gathered intelligence for Waller's aggressive campaign, and we took a look at a heroic mission by two Marines. This week's episode discusses the final years of the U.S. occupation in Haiti. The U.S. starts to transfer the power back to the Haitian government, and there was considerable progress in the Gendarmerie Force. We also touch on some of the more atrocious acts by Marines, as well as a few theories why Marines resulted in these types of tactics. Thanks for joining. Now let's talk about the history of the Marine Corps. As 1919 ended, most of the Marines serving in Haiti and the Dominican Republic were replaced by a new batch of Marines. The fresh Marines picked up where the salt dogs left off and continued to patrol the Cacos. The new commander, Colonel John Russell, reorganized the Marines, improved their living conditions, and established a new strategy, which included more frequent operations with the intent to eliminate the Cacos. After Hannikin's heroic campaign, which ended up killing Charlemagne, the number of attacks dropped drastically in northern Haiti. Now that leadership positions were vacant, many up-and-coming CACO leaders quickly tried to fill Charlemagne's shoes. Benoit Batraville took over the role, and CACO activity moved to the east. Benoit had more than 2,500 men under his command, and many more active CACOs in Haiti were under his control. Russell planned to constantly attack CACO camps, keep their forces moving, and keep them disorganized. He also paid close attention to how frequent Marines were patrolling and engaging with bandits, and he made sure Marines on patrol were relieved often and properly rested. Marines mapped the CACO territory. They split the map into sectors and planned missions based on these sectors and the details in the maps. The Haitian government also coordinated a propaganda campaign and reinstated amnesty for any bandits who turned themselves in. The purpose of this strategy was to keep the bandits on their toes, take away their capacity to reorganize, and hopefully deny them the ability to rest or to eat. The 1,300 Marines and 2,700 Gendarmeries focused on banditry throughout the country, 
and their efforts saw a dramatic reduction of attacks from Kakos. For the first six months of 1920, there were 200 encounters with Kakos, and nearly all of them were either killed, captured, or took up the government's amnesty offer. Early in the year, over 300 rebels snuck into Port-au-Prince and attempted a surprise attack. The Marines and Gendarmes discovered the intruders and defended the town. Over half of the Kakos were casualties or captured. Only two Marines were injured. The Kakos referred to this attack as, quote, the debacle, and it killed their morale. This defeat combined with Russell's intense new strategy caused around 3,200 bandits to surrender, including some of their more notorious leaders. For the rebels who did surrender, the U.S. and Haiti made every effort to find them employment with the hopes that they would navigate towards work and not revert back to lawlessness. In March, the United States changed the focus back to Benoit, and a plan was created to attack his main camp. He had close to 300 men guarding his camp, and most of them fled during the initial attack. With a few hundred bandits dispersed throughout the country, it became more difficult to track them down. This resulted in some unfortunate encounters. Lieutenant Lawrence Muth was on patrol, and he and his men were ambushed and surrounded by Benoit's men. Lieutenant Muth was killed, and a second Marine was injured during the ambush. The Marines and gendarmes were able to kill 10 Kakos during this ambush. They carried their dead and injured back to camp with them. This attack resulted in the Marines stepping up their patrols. 21 patrols were going on at the same time to hunt down these bandits. The Marines and Gendarmes killed 25 of them during these patrols. In May, Captain Jesse Perkins took a patrol consisting of one other officer and 28 enlisted on a hunt for Benoit. The Marines received intelligence that Benoit's camp was nearby. The patrol encountered a small settlement, they exchanged a few rounds, and the bandits fled. Perkins sent most of his men after the fleeing rebels. He and three other Marines stayed behind and headed towards Benoit. Sergeant Passmore took the point position with his automatic rifle, and he rushed into camp. The small Marine detachment was taking shots as they advanced, but miraculously, none of them were injured. Passmore spotted Benoit, and the Kako's leader took aim and fired at Passmore, while only 10 feet away. The Marine returned fire, killing Benoit instantly. The remaining Kakos continued to fire at the four Marines, but the rest of the patrol showed up just in the nick of time and chased them off. Benoit's death contributed more to the drop of morale, and during the beginning of June, 35 more Kakos surrendered. By the end of the month, most of them were eliminated. Russell's campaign contributed to 2,000 bandits being killed, compared to 250 during the initial campaign. 11,000 either turned themselves in or were captured. The Marines had 7 killed and 10 wounded during these two campaigns. 27 gendarmes were killed and 45 were wounded. Haiti and the United States continued to hunt down the remaining cacos in the area, and the United States passed the responsibility of establishing law and order to the Haitians. At the beginning of 1921, about 30 small groups were estimated to still exist in the country. By October, 
these small bands were wiped out as well. As a result, the country started to see less crime, and living conditions began to improve. But back in the United States, the media started to criticize U.S. presence in Haiti. Some papers started to change their narrative on CACOs and began to sympathize with them. The question of why we were still in Haiti was also brought up. This doubt resulted in an investigation by senior naval officers and hearings by a Senate committee. The findings were mostly positive for Marines' actions in Haiti, but there were criticisms about the whole operation. As a result, Russell was appointed High Commissioner in February 1922. He assumed the rank of ambassador and was assigned as the diplomatic representative in Haiti. For the next seven years, the country continued to see peace and progress. More roads were built, the Gendarmerie force reached 2,700 men, and many public works improvements were made. Marines were still present, but their strength was reduced to a little over 500. Just about everyone was content with these improvements. The exceptions were the career politicians. The old Haitian politicians were essentially out of a job, and they were unhappy with the country's progress. There was a worldwide depression that was starting to cause a lot of instability in the country. The old politicians took advantage of this, and they started to push conspiracy theories to instill doubt in Haitian citizens. This strategy is something to be aware of. Conspiracy theories can sometimes be true. A fitting example of that is the Gulf of Tonkin incident, which we'll get into during the Vietnam War. Or Operation Mongoose, where the CIA wanted to attack Miami and blame it on the Cubans. Conspiracies happen, but they have also been used as political tools throughout history, especially during times of unrest. Most theories you hear are from people either trying to gain or disrupt power. Politicians in Haiti managed to convince students and government employees to go on strike. Soon, the Custom House employees were on strike as well, and the protesters created havoc in the streets. The Haitian government declared martial law and managed to control the situation within the city, but small bands would move to areas under less control, and the movement started to spread. The protests began to pick up steam, and soon, a few other schools joined in on the strike. The leaders of this movement started to smuggle weapons into the country, and the news started to spread about a potential attack on Jackmal. The Gendarmerie sent additional forces to cut off the rebellion, and martial law was soon again declared. Russell called for more Marines, and on December 7th, the 1st Provisional Battalion was sent from Hampton Roads to Haiti. The mob continued to grow during this time, and they soon reached over 1,500 Haitians. As they advanced towards Kays, a detachment of 20 Marines was sent to meet the crowd. U.S. troops were armed with rifles and automatic weapons, while the Haitians mostly carried sticks and stones, and their most advanced weapon probably being a machete. When the two forces met, the mob leaders demanded the release of a few prisoners. Their request was denied, and in response, the protesters moved towards the Marines. A warning shot was fired over their heads, which caused the incoming Haitians to pause for a moment, but they continued to march towards the Marines. U.S. forces waited until one of their leaders was in sight, and they opened fire. Six were killed, and 28 were wounded. The mob quickly fled. 
Mobs grew in two other areas as well, but the Gendarmerie was able to stop the uprising without using violence. By December 8th, most tensions were under control, and the country quickly returned to where it was before the strike. But out of the chaos came some hope. The Gendarmerie were able to show significant growth, especially with their ability to stop an uprising without the assistance of Marines, and without using violence. They matured to a point where they could handle the security of their country without support. The battalion of Marines who left Hampton Roads never made it to Haiti. They weren't needed anymore, and their ship was diverted to Guantanamo Bay. In March 1930, William Cameron Forbes led a commission studying the conditions of the country. He had a few recommendations based on the investigation. 1. All services under U.S. control would be turned over to the Haitian government. 2. A minister would be appointed to replace the high commissioner. 3. A temporary president will be put in place by a fair election process. 4. The treaty would be modified for less intervention in Haiti affairs. And finally, the Marines would leave the country. Stanio Vincent was elected as a new president of Haiti, and General Russell resigned on November 12, 1930. He was replaced by Dana Monroe. The United States slowly carried out the Forbes Commission's recommendations. It took years, but the Haitian government eventually resumed all duties in country, and the treaty reflected Forbes' suggestion. By October 1934, Haitians had complete control of their country, and the Marines were ordered to leave within 30 days. The 800 Marines remaining on the island eventually left as well, marking the end of multiple military interventions in Latin American countries. The total casualties for Marines during the 19 years in Haiti were 10 killed and 26 wounded. The Banana Wars is a very controversial time for just about everyone involved. The United States had abhorrent practices in Haiti, including enforcing Jim Crow laws towards the Haitian people, administering the corvée policy, which we discussed during the last episode, and assigning Marines to stop unions from gathering, strictly for American businesses in Haiti. This part of history was also a dark time for Marines, and the Corps didn't always adhere to their high standards. Lesser offenses, and I use that term loosely, involved censorship, religious persecution of voodoo practitioners, and forced labor. Concentration camps were also set up, and an estimated 5,500 civilians died in these camps. Marines executed prisoners, and there was also mass murder of civilians. Rapes and lynchings also took place. In 1919, Marines started to attack countryside villages, and in December, an airstrike bombed Lacay's and killed half of the civilian population. An investigation was conducted, but no one was charged. Over in the Dominican Republic, Captain Charles Merkel was known as the Tiger of Saibo. He terrorized the town and murdered and tortured villagers. In one instance, he rounded up locals to ask about rebels in the area. He fired his pistol in the air in an attempt to intimidate the residents, but when he still couldn't get information, he approached a man standing outside his home and shot him in the head. And although he is undoubtedly responsible for his own actions, a lot of his blame can also be pointed to his battalion commander, 
Lieutenant Colonel George Thorpe. Thorpe's orders were to, quote, kill a whole lot of people, unquote, which included more than the rebels. He believed that the Germans funded and were leading the rebellion in Haiti, and his Marines started killing civilians in retaliation. Many of his officers were accused of committing similar atrocities. Captain Thad Taylor and a group of Marines captured a Syrian national and accused him of murder. The Marines shot and killed him, and Taylor, quote, took a dagger and driving it in his throat, slashed down to his abdomen, unquote. Thorpe took the coward way out. He denied any wrongdoing and put his entire blame on Merkel. But the correspondence Thorpe wrote to his chain of command strongly suggests that he knew about it, and he allowed it. Merkel would end up committing suicide while waiting to be tried. In his suicide letter to Russell Duck, another Marine officer under Thorpe, he stated, quote, I am doing this in order to save disgracing the Marine Corps and myself. But I sincerely hope that God will punish Thorpe someday, for he is not fit to have command of anything, and his sole object is to get people in trouble. Unquote. Merkel was never court-martialed for his crimes. There are many arguments on why the Marines went down such a dark path during this time. The drop in morale is a big factor, and it has been credited to acting as motivation for these attacks. There's also a theory that racism played a big part. Many Marines sent to Haiti came from the South, and segregation, forced labor, and Marine generals who flat-out supported racism might have been a factor as well. Stephen Pimpinella, author of The Way of Progress and Civilization, Racial Hierarchy and U.S. State Building in Haiti and the Dominican Republic, 1915-1922, provides some convincing arguments for this reason. There is also an argument that the U.S. entering into World War I played a role in the behavior of Marines serving in Haiti and the Dominican Republic. While the United States was fighting the Great War, Marines were stuck in Latin America. Many of them wanted to fight, but they weren't able to. Smedley Butler provided some great insight into this mindset. When he was assigned as the commander of Marine and Gendarmerie forces, he thought it was a respectable position. But as the U.S. entered the war, he started to have a change of heart. In a letter to his parents, he wrote, quote, This work here would be more interesting and worthwhile, but under the circumstances, it is unbearable. This thing of being left out of the show is really more than I can stand, and I tell you both very truthfully that I shall never show my face in Westchester again if I am not allowed to go to France. Had I remained in civil life, I could have gone to France at least as a lieutenant and saved my face whole now. I must sit here, under a foreign flag while my country goes to war. It isn't as if I asked to be sent as a general, or even a colonel, or even a lieutenant colonel. I would welcome any position from private on down. He goes on to talk about his other relatives fighting in the war. Bunny has 14 near-male relatives in the U.S. Army, from privates up to lieutenants, and all my able-bodied kinfolk have gone, all males on both sides. But me, the one professional soldier, they can readily see why I could never associate with anyone after the war. Someday my grandchildren will be subjected to the remark, where was your grandfather during the war? And they will have to lurch their heads in shame 
and either lie or say he was a policeman in the service of a foreign and black republic. Unquote. I think any Marine listening will understand what he's going through. The feeling of being stuck while the rest of the world was in Europe must have been harsh. But Butler had connections, and he would eventually leave to France in 1918, mostly because of his father's political friends. But there were many other Marines who didn't have that opportunity. Many historians argue that the brutalities conducted by Marines are isolated instances. And to some extent, they're right. But that's hardly an excuse. The fact that Thorpe had multiple officers committing the same heinous acts is pretty concerning. The deeds by these Marines also changed the opinion of many about the Marine Corps. There's no way to spin this. These acts didn't speed up the end of the war. They didn't even provide valuable information to the Marines. These acts caused the local population to distrust the United States and the U.S. Marines. It caused the war to go on longer, and it resulted in more Marines' deaths. The Marine Corps' small wars manual was created due to U.S. conflicts in the Banana Wars. Section 3, which focuses on psychology, summarizes the chapter with, quote, Psychological errors may be committed which antagonize a population of the country, but mistakes may have the most far-reaching effect and it may require a long period to re-establish confidence, respect, and order. The purpose should always be to restore normal government or give the people a better government than they had before, and to establish peace, order, and security on as permanent a basis as practicable. Gradually, there must be instilled in the inhabitants' minds the leading ideas of civilization, the security, and sanctity of life and property, and individual liberty. In so doing, one should endeavor to make self-sufficient native agencies responsible for these matters. With all this accomplished, one should be able to leave the country with the lasting friendship and respect of the native population. Unquote. Now, those of you who are familiar with Marine Corps history might be wondering why I didn't mention Chesty Pooler during the Nicaragua and Haiti episodes. Chesty Pooler was one of a kind, and I'm going to dedicate an entire episode, maybe two, to this legend. So we will talk about Chesty Pooler in Nicaragua and Haiti in future episodes. Traveling back to the end of the 19th century, the United States entered into war with Spain. We cover this engagement during episode 71, the Spanish-American War, but in short, yellow journalism, the original fake news, helped escalate the tension between the two countries, and soon, the United States was at war with Spain. The Treaty of Paris was officially signed on December 10, 1898. Under the treaty, the U.S. gained control of Spain's colonies in the Philippines, Guam, and Puerto Rico. Cuba became a U.S. protectorate. This entire war lasted four months. Two days before the treaty was signed, fighting broke out between U.S. troops and the Filipinos. The first president of the Philippines, Emilio Aguinaldo, didn't want his country to be under the control of another colonial ruler. He wanted independence, but the United States disagreed. The decision for the United States to keep the Philippines under their control is arguably caused by self-interest. 
Some historians believe that President McKinley and his administrations were determined to conquer the Philippines before the war even began. Usually the focus is a combination of four events. The first is that the U.S. wanted Pacific bases to position U.S. naval vessels for long-term strategic needs. The second is that the U.S. wanted to increase trade opportunities in Asia. Three, the U.S. didn't think Filipinos were capable of establishing and ruling their own country. And the fourth is that the U.S. was concerned another foreign power would take control of the island. Similar to the Banana Wars, U.S. involvement in the Philippines was met with a lot of criticism amongst the U.S. population. Many citizens felt that getting involved in colonialism was morally wrong and against everything the United States stood for. Other Americans just didn't want Filipinos to have a role in American politics. Marines of the Asiatic Fleet began to prepare for a possible intervention with the Philippines. On September 16, 1899, McKinley ordered his commissioners to secure Luzon. Marines and the Navy headed to their target and discovered the defenses there. A joint naval-marine landing was conducted on September 23rd, and their mission was to destroy the defenses. 35 Marines from the Baltimore, Concord, and the Charleston participated in this raid, and they were commanded by Captain J.T. Myers. The naval vessels bombarded the Filipinos' defenses, while U.S. troops focused on destroying their guns. There was a lot of resistance by Filipinos, but the U.S. was ultimately successful in its mission. U.S. troops headed back to their ships with their task accomplished, but the Filipino resistance grew in strength. This three-year war would result in over 20,000 Filipino combatants and up to 200,000 civilian deaths. Thanks for listening. Next week, we'll head to the Philippines. Welcome to this week's book recommendation. This week's audiobook is Reckless, The Racehorse Who Became a Marine Corps Hero by Tom Clavin. Reckless was a four-year-old, chestnut-colored Mongolian racehorse who lost her home during the war. She was sold to a Marine and was trained to transport supplies back and forth from the front lines. Her actions were so widespread that the Chinese issued a hit on her. This book is another twofer for you. It's available for free with your Audible subscription, so I wouldn't advise you selecting it for your free audiobook. Take a look at the tons of Audible choices, select a book you're interested in for free, and then download Reckless as well. Visit audibletrial.com slash marinehistory for a free audiobook and a free 30-day trial. But don't feel obligated to select my recommendation. The free audiobook applies to any of the thousands of Audible choices. If you like what you're hearing, check out historyofthemarinecorps.com. Here you can subscribe to our newsletter, find out more information about each show, and look at references used for each episode. We're also on Facebook and Twitter at Marine History, and on Instagram at History of the Marines. If you're enjoying the podcast, tell a friend. We count on listeners like you to share, and any help would be greatly appreciated. If you don't like what you hear, please contact us through historyofthemarinecorps.com and let us know why. I'm always looking for ways to improve. Thanks for listening, and Semper Fi.